You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Ora et labora, pray and work. This directive has ordered the life of Benedictine monastics for centuries, each day's rhythm of worship and toil shaping the soul toward love and humility. But this Benedictine life creates other kinds of change as well. It can shape how a monk reads the Bible. In his book, Reading Matthew with Monks, Derek Olson explains how a life defined by the rule in the liturgy creates a distinctive community of Bible readers, focusing particularly on the sermons of the Anglo-Saxon abbot Alfred Vincham. Olson doesn't present these monastic readers as a historical curiosity, however. Instead, he argues that voices like Alfred should be included in our current conversations about biblical interpretation. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Derek Olson, author of Reading Matthew with Monks, Liturgical Interpretation in Anglo-Saxon England, published by Liturgical Press. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Olson. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'd like to start off with uh, what piqued my interest in the book. I, I, I was immediately interested by the title, Reading Matthew with Monks. I like Matthew, I like monks. And it was clinched when I found out that the monastic reader that you're most uh, closely examining is Alfred Chavinsham. Now, I'm an English professor with a specialty in Old English, so Alfred is one of my old friends, but he's not exactly a household name. So, who is Alfred Chavinsham? And what brought you, a New Testament scholar, into this project of conversation with Alfred? Yeah, I'm I'm really amazed that more people don't know Alfred. Um, Right? (laughs) Yeah, uh, old English scholars have uh, have got got some evangelism work to do here to uh, to spread Alfred's name. Absolutely. Um, Because he's such a fascinating figure and is is so very useful. Um, to anyone studying church history, particularly medieval church history in England. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm an Episcopalian, uh, part of the, the Anglican tradition, um, and so medieval England is, is sort of our, our wheelhouse, and I'm, I was shocked that I'd never heard of him uh, before I got into him. Um, so Alfred was a, uh, a 10th century Benedictine abbot. Mm. Um, we're not sure, uh, we don't have a whole lot of biographical details on him other than the little snippets that he gives us and some of his prefaces and such. Uh, we do know that he was educated at Winchester under uh, sort of the, the great reform movement uh, at the end of the, the middle to end of the 10th century uh, with the Benedictine reform. Uh, and then we, we see him uh, as an abbot um, at Kern, and we don't know when he died People tend to put it around the year 1020, 1015, 1020, somewhere in there. Um, the reason why Alfred is such an interesting guy, though, uh, is because we have a massive amount of writing from him, mm. uh, at least, you know, church-related writing. So we've got, we've got cycles of sermons, we've got cycles of saints' lives, which, which were also sermons uh, in their proper context. We've got letters uh, to churchmen, we've got letters to literate lay nobles, um, uh, we've got random treatises, uh, we've got uh, uh, grammars, uh, and the fascinating thing is most of his writing is, in fact, in the vernacular. It, he's, he's producing this large corpus of literature in English. Mm. Um, certainly not in English that's familiar to most of us, uh, but his point was to speak to 
the people of his culture, uh, the people who didn't know Latin, who didn't have that advantage, um, and to communicate what it was that the Church was about and what the Church was trying to do in the language of the people. Um, yeah, I, I actually um, discovered Alfred in a weird, roundabout kind of way. Um, I'd, I'd been reading uh, Bernard Cornwell's uh, Arthurian trilogy, hmm. um, and uh, he, he'd, he'd made some reference uh, that uh, part of what he was basing his, his image of Arthur from was, was from some of the early uh, Celtic saints' lives, uh, where Arthur shows up kind of as a bad guy. And I thought, hey, this sounds kind of cool. I've never encountered this before. Um, and so I, I did some searching around and, and turned up uh, Skeet's old volume of uh, Alfred's Lives of the Saints and, and started digging a little deeper and, and so discovered Alfred and the Ormulum and the Blickling Homilies and uh, the, the whole tradition of uh, Old English vernacular preaching. Mm. Uh, so m- my PhD is in New Testament. Uh, I'm, I'm a gospel guy, uh, but my outside area is is preaching homiletics, mm-hmm. and so I was immediately fascinated uh, to sort of discover this corpus that, for the most part, the preaching teachers and uh, and literature don't seem to discuss or get into a whole lot. It's it, it's sort of its own preserve over in uh, in English literature studies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And we're mainly interested in, you know, Wolf Stan's sermon of the wolf to the English because it's apocalyptic and plays to uh, a lot of, uh, I I think, a lot of the cliches about the medieval um, mind leading up to that uh, first millennium. True. Well, I I like Alfred much more. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, beyond my delight that uh, we're, we're focusing on him. Uh, I'm I'm just happy that that, that someone's someone is giving him attention um, in the in the theology side of things, not just the English lit. Well, your project is focused on how our contexts shape our reading of the Bible, and how being aware of that can make us better readers. So, could you briefly explain? what in your book you call reading cultures and how they influence our interpretation of texts and how does the modern academic discipline of biblical studies work as one of those reading cultures all right so reading cultures are communities of readers uh, that share common assumptions uh, techniques and vocabularies Mm. Um, there are certain strategies that are common uh, among these reading cultures, and and they, these shouldn't be thought of as as sort of discrete uh, groups, but instead, part of what's interesting and challenging about them is is the way they overlap uh, often. So the, the, we sort of have a broad macro culture uh, of of reading, um, but then within that are are micro cultures that that read in particular ways. Um, and, and have uh, assumptions and, and such coded in them. So as a quick example, if a, a modern American reader were to per- pick up a, a book or a, uh, a, a short writing that begins, once upon a time, hmm. then we would know what that is. We'd say, well, this, this is a, it's a fairy tale, uh, because it starts out with those words, once upon a time. Um, now, what does once upon a time sound like in Hebrew, or, or in Greek, or in, in Latin? Um, 
that's the sort of information that, that sort of we know what it sounds like in English because this is our reading culture. Uh, we've read enough things that start like that to know what to expect. Um, so these are, are social cultures with particular sort of reading technologies. So that is, they tend to ask uh, similar questions and then try and answer those questions in a similar way and with similar strategies. Um, they also tend to be implicit rather than explicit, which, which means the boundaries of, of reading cultures uh, can be kind of squishy and unclear, and there can be confusion as to exactly who is writing for whom. Hmm. Um, and this is one of the situations that occurs when, say, a, a new seminarian uh, or, or an interested layperson first picks up a technical biblical commentary for their first time. Right? Um, they, they may bring certain assumptions to it. They may bring certain uh, ideas about what it is they're going to find there um, and discover that their expectations don't necessarily match what the, the work is doing. Uh, so, for instance, the first time that they pick it up and, and see ancient um, Israelite religion referred to as the cult, um, <laughs> yeah, that can be sort of a, uh, a jarring experience, you know, because cult is something that means one thing in sort of vernacular popular literature, um, you know, a, a shady sort of religious organization, uh, but for academic scholars of religion, cult simply refers to the way that, that ritual uh, is, is done by organized groups. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's, it's an issue of technical vocabulary uh, in that case. Uh, so modern biblical studies is a discrete reading culture um, because the course of study that trains us, the, the, the master's project process, the, the PhD process, uh, trains us to read in certain ways, to ask certain kinds of questions, um, to master a certain body of literature, um, and then to produce certain kinds of works that answer the questions that we've been trained to ask in particular ways. Hmm. Does that help clarify? Yeah, absolutely. It, it reminds me uh, a little bit, that's not exactly um, the, the, the language that he uses, but it reminds me of some of uh, Tilika's observation and his little exercise for young theologians about... Mm -hmm what theological study, um, the, the way it creates a student. Well, right. Well, why turn to a 10th century Anglo-Saxon Benedictine <laughs> for your counterpoint in a kind of reading culture analysis? Why, why would you have this conversation, and what would this conversation do that a more contemporary cross-cultural interaction might not do? Right. Um, there is a lot of, of good work already happening in the academic sphere uh, with contemporary cross-cultural work. Uh, so one of the resources that I drew on was Brian Blunt's Cultural Hermeneutics, mm -hmm. um, which, which engages African-American reading communities and um, you know, from Negro spirituals to looking at black church preaching. Uh, so, so there is good work on, on that sort of stuff. There's also been, um, I think this sort of kicked off back in the 70s, 80s, with looking at uh, base communities in Latin America, so sort of a, a, a peasant reading with kind of a Marxist bent to it, and, and how that flows into sort of a liberation theology thing. Um, what I appreciated about this kind of engagement is that you've got academics 
who are looking both deeply and sympathetically at a set of non-academic reading strategies, uh, and then genuinely asking, all right, what are they doing, how are they doing it, and what can we learn from this? Hmm. Because being in a reading community, uh, it, it gives us these, these questions and these strategies and these approaches, uh, but by doing so, it also gives us a set of blinders, mm-hmm. because it trains us to ask certain kinds of questions and not others. And so one of the, the real helpful parts of bumping up against another group of readers is to say, right, what questions are they asking, and what questions am I not asking, or what questions am I missing or, or glossing over, because it doesn't even occur to me to ask them. Mm. Uh, and, and so when you've got a, a deep, sympathetic engagement, um, I think there's, there's real fruitful opportunity for learning there. So you know, modern biblical scholarship, as, as kind of an academic field, uh, is an intentionally secular discipline. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so individual biblical scholars uh, can be faithful Christians, um, and I've known lots of those, um, but you don't have to be a faithful Christian to do this work, uh, because one aspect of it is setting aside faith claims about the text. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result, we've got some great New Testament scholars who are Jewish. Uh, Amy Jill Levine pops to mind. Uh, one of my best friends in my PhD program was an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's because modern New Testament studies rest broadly in the field of history of ideas. Now, who thought this first? What did they actually intend when they thought it? And then what did other people do with it from there? Right. Uh, which is why certain texts get more study than others. We, we look at the first person to think a thing, uh, not the second or third or fourth. So we, we prefer Jude to Second Peter. Uh, you know, we, we want to know what, what Paul, the authentic Paul, as opposed to potentially inauthentic Paul, uh, because the key question is who thought it first? Mm-hmm. Uh, so as part of this evolving the evolution into a secular field, one of the things that biblical studies went through was a period of rejecting certain kinds of theological readings. And what I wanted to do was to look back at some of these reading practices and and strategies that the field has discarded, um, to to look at this kind of classical Christian reading strategy from a sympathetic perspective, Mm. uh, and, and ask, what can we learn from this? And the monastic, the Benedictine reading culture in particular appealed to me because the monastic life was centered on constantly engaging the biblical text Hmm. uh, through the act of prayer, and then being transformed by the text and the practices of faith. Uh, So so this isn't just an exercise in casual reading. Uh, This is wholehearted, full-body, fundamental commitment to reading the text and being shaped by it. Hmm. Well, you spend your first two chapters... Um, unpacking this description that you're you're uh, you're giving of the monastic reading culture, you focus on monastic life in chapter one, and then uh, monastic prayer in chapter two, the the liturgy specifically. Um, this was a really rich section of the book, and so I'd I'd like to camp here for a while. Um, so first, how did the monastic life shape? Uh, monks like Alfrich as readers, both in kind of the larger aims of monastic practice and then, I, I guess, the peculiarly literary or scholarly aspects of that vocation? All right. There are, um, there are sort of three main vehicles 
that shaped monastic life and reading generally. Uh, the Psalms, the Saints, and the Rule. Mm. Um, so the, the Psalms were the fundamental vocabulary of monastic life. Um, you you, you kind of have to imagine, um, so an oblate like Bede, you know, saying Bede dropped off at a mon- monastery at age nine. Mm. Um, he's, he's used to running around the field all days and chatting with his friends in uh, Theodish, you know, or Old English. Um, he hmm. probably doesn't know such Latin. And so then he sort of gets, gets implanted in this, uh, this community, um, and the first thing that happens uh, is he's going to be whisked off to the church um, to join in the, the monastic order, uh, and then the, the whole cycle of, of prayer offices. And so the, the very first thing that he's going to encounter is, is the chanting of the psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the psalms are going to form his first introduction into this. Uh, it's going to become the first body of Latin that he learns, because he's going to pick it up the way that uh, you know, kids pick up songs on the radio. Uh, I remember my, my girls uh, singing Gangnam Style, uh, you know, when, when, that was, when that was big. They obviously don't know a stitch of Korean, but uh, through sort of just hearing the music and, and repeating it, um, they can come out with a string of, of what mostly sounds like Korean. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that was sort of the basic process for language acquisition. Uh, just being in the presence of the, the Psalms constantly uh, was how they would begin to learn Latin, uh, then formal instruction would be added into that. Um, and because they had this large mass of, of data, um, that's what monastic educators would draw on. So as a result, when they learned to read, uh, they would begin by reading the Psalms, because they already knew what it was supposed to say. And so if you've already kind of got that text in your head, uh, then finding it on the page is a lot easier. Right. Uh, then when they move into the liberal arts and, and the basics of grammar, uh, the examples in, in a lot of the, the grammars come from the Psalms. Um, when they got into to learning about figures of speech, uh, rhetoric, dialectic, that kind of thing, um, they'd be introduced to it through Cassiodorus, who was, and his big commentary on the Psalms, which said, all right, so when the Psalms say this, this is a figure, this is this kind of figure of speech, and this is how it's functioning. Uh, St. Bede does the same thing in his uh, work on rhetoric. There's constant examples from the Psalms. So the Psalms really were sort of the, the fundamental vocabulary and the lens through which everything else was seen and, and th- through which they were taught how to read a biblical text. Hmm. Um, second, the saints. Um, the saints gave medieval monks a, a goal an image of what it is that they're shooting for. Mm. Uh, there's a strong tradition uh, of Stoic Paideia uh, education, which comes in from the early Desert Fathers, it comes in through John Cashin, who's the, the, sort of the, the big first writer on Christian spirituality uh, in, in a monastic kind of uh, idiom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so imitation of Christ imitation, of, you know, Paul says it, imitate Christ, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, mm. The biblical figures then also were seen as, as examples for what you do or what you don't do, and then the saints, and the lives of the saints flow into this as well. Um, modern Protestants often don't know what to do with the saints. They, they don't try to have a clear picture of how the saints fit into an authentic Christianity. Um, but understanding the saints and how they function are critical for seeing 
and understanding how they function in monastic life and therefore in monastic reading. Um, mm-hmm. So, briefly, the New Testament exhorts us in several places to grow into the full stature of Christ. So, mm-hmm. you know, baptism is what grafts us into Christ. It, it grafts us into the body of Christ. Um, it makes us part of the great community who are, of people who are plugged directly into the life of God. But, as Paul says, the, the grafting into the body of Christ is the beginning of a process of transformation into the, the life and the hopes and the dreams of God. It, it's not the end of it. Mm-hmm. So we have to grow into Christian maturity. The body of Christ has to grow into the mind of Christ. And that's one of the ways that the saints function, is they show people what a fully realized Christian looks like. Uh, it, it's a concrete image of Christian maturity. Right. And, and so they're showing what it looks like to embody the principles of Scripture so that the saints themselves become visual texts, displaying in, in forms in their, in their various contexts what it looks like to really embody biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, the, the, the part of the saints that tends to make people nervous um, is the whole miracle thing. Right. And <laughs> in, in order to sort of work with this, you have to understand why the miracle thing is important. Mm-hmm. So when we read early medieval saints' lives, there are a lot of miracles reported in them. And so we tend to get hung up on the historicity of these things. So did they happen or didn't they happen? Well, it's, it's a widely circulated, frequently copied, sometimes embellished text. So it's, it's really hard to try and drill back into the history behind the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the history question, um, it, it, in some ways it's a very modern question to ask. Um, and... For the medieval mind, the history question wasn't the edifying question. Mm. Uh, because what edifies isn't, so did this actually happen in this way, but what is this saying about this person? What is this saying about God? Mm-hmm. Um, so, most of the miracles that we see performed in these are, are biblical miracles. So they're doing the same kinds of things that biblical figures did. And that's because, it's not because the authors didn't have enough imagination to come up with something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point was that the saints were participating in the same virtues as biblical people, and as a result they were receiving the same kind of gifts and graces from God as mm-hmm. biblical people. So one function is to tie them back closer to the biblical examples that they were following. Second, the other point of miracles is never that the saint does it. Saints don't do miracles. God does miracles. Mm-hmm. And the fact that God works miracles through the saints, or at, this, at the saints' intercession, is a clear demonstration of how deeply the saint is plugged into the divine life of God, and, and is a direct conduit for God's eschatological power to, to transform things. Mm. Um, and, and so the saints, as, uh, as, as people, as... Uh, people with lives to be imitated, and as um, sort of really good imitators of, of Christ uh, are an important part of, of the reading process. Hmm. Um, third, the, the rule. The rule, um, so monastic life was, was le- legislated, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Benedict's rule um, really in the, in the early 800s became sort of the, the standard rule 
for, uh, for Northern Europe. Uh, and, and certainly it's the one we hear about the most today. Um, the rule gave not just instructions for how to live, but why to live that way, hmm. uh, connecting it back into the biblical text. Um, so the, the rule wasn't just about reading Scripture. It was about embodying Scripture. So it's, it's not enough to understand the text. You've got to live it. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing it and doing it are, are clearly two different things. Um, and, and in some sense, that's, that's kind of the contrast between studying the Bible as a modern ac- academic discipline and praying it as a monk. It, right. Modern academic scholars, we have to know it, but the monks have to be transformed by it. That's, mm. that's their whole thing. Excellent. And reading with that goal means that you read differently. With different yes, <laughs> it does. So the, the fundamental questions that you're asking are different questions. Mm. Well, let's talk about the liturgy for a bit. Um, it's not just that they know lots of psalms and they have saint the you know the saints here who are sort of presenting this kind of chain of lived imitation of Christ that that comes carries down that tradition to their own day and the rule to guide them in it. Um, but they also have these complex patterns of worship that are ordering their existence through the day, through the week, through the year. Right. Um, we can't work through all the details of the liturgy, and it's really hard to d- explain charts in a podcast. <laughs> but uh, in your second chapter, you 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 sketch this out and really, uh, I, I think, explain and and very clearly how how this liturgy shapes their life and shapes their reading. So if you could kind of get a sense for that for our, our, our listeners, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Um, probably the best place to start is simply by defining liturgy. Mm. Um, so when I say liturgy, I mean that they would use a, a set and ordered pattern of worship. Right. Um, the, the spiritual heart of liturgical worship is fulfilling two key commands from Paul. Uh, so th- the first is speak to one another in psalms, canticles, and spiritual songs. Uh, the second is pray without ceasing. Mm. So th- the whole perspective was, um, you know, well, first, if, if God didn't like written down prayers, then he wouldn't have given us the psalms, uh, <laughs> which, which is an entire book of the Bible made up entirely of written down prayers. Um, the, the purpose of liturgical worship is the disciplined recollection of God. Um, mm. So, in, or, in other words, you're stopping it at a whole bunch of times during the day to, to just stop and reorient your, yourself, your, your thoughts, your words, everything, towards God. Mm. And the ideal is that through this disciplined recollection of God, you'll be moving more towards a habitual recollection of God. So that instead of, of simply stopping at prescribed times, um, that this becomes a pattern of life, that this just becomes part of who you are. Mm. Um, that in your, because the, you are so saturated by psalms and scriptures, that these will be your habitual thoughts. And so you'll mm. constantly be, be orient, orienting yourself. Uh, and, and the ideal is always the constant recollection of God. Um, but that's rare, and, and sort of an, an ideal rather than a, a practical goal. Mm. Um, but the idea of being transformed, your your thoughts, your orientation, um, to be constantly turned Godward. Mm. Um, so, 
that's kind of what liturgical worship was was about uh, and, and how they were trying to do it. Um, there are three main kinds of services that monks would do every day. Uh, so the first is the daily office or the hours of prayer. Um, what these were is, again, all, all this stuff is, has got a scriptural um, rationale to it. Uh, in, in Psalm 119, uh, it says, seven times a day will I praise you. Uh, and so the, the early monastic legislators looked at that and said, yep, sounds good to us. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's literally seven uh, set hours uh, where they would get together and, and pray in common. Um, but the psalm also mentions, and I will also rise in the night watches and praise you. Uh, so they threw in one for that as well. Right. So the, the basic pattern here is, is you have the night office, um, which is, is kind of the, the big office in the nighttime. And when I say nighttime, I mean they wake up like 3.30, 4.30 or so, depending on the season. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and plow through um, lots of stuff. Um, the night office was really kind of the big prayer office. This is where you're going to get a, a big chunk of psalms. Um, it's also where you would get your biblical reading. Mm. Um, so the the ideal that, that we have in the monastic legislation is that in the night office, the monks are going to hear all of Scripture read every mm. year. So on a yearly cycle, they're going to be hearing all the Scripture, and anything that they don't finish up in the daily office will be read during mealtimes, so they'll get it. So that's the ideal. It didn't always happen, um, and as we move sort of later in the, in the Middle Ages, that becomes less and less of, of a, an ideal. Um, but certainly the intention was they're encountering the entire body of Scripture every year through the liturgical cycle. Um, so, uh, night office, we've, we've got one to three nocturnes, which are uh, clumps of psalms. Um, and then you have sort of two, two medium-sized offices at the hinges of the day, so at morning and evening, um, mm -hmm. the lauds and vespers. Um, these were often interpreted as being analogous to the, the twice-daily sacrifices, uh, that God commands in, in Exodus and Leviticus uh, mm. of lambs and, and wine and, and incense. Um, and so these are offerings uh, of, of a sort, and, and incense actually was, was often used at those. Uh, and then you would have uh, five other little smaller offices um, that were, were fairly brief, uh, usually only, only three psalms or so uh, at those, and, and they'd be spaced every few hours throughout the day. Um, and so the heart of the office, then, is the repetition of the psalms. Um, it's going through, going through the Psalter. It's, it's usually lined out so that all 150 psalms were being sung every week. Uh, and, and Benedict acknowledges and notes in his, in his Gospel that, that he knows that this is sort of the, the regimen for slackers. Um, and, and, and he's okay with that because he understands the weakness of people in this present age. Uh, because, because real Christians would be going through all 150 of them every day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, we see this in, uh, in, in Celtic saints' lives. Um, so in, in the life of St. Patrick, I believe, and maybe also the life of St. David, uh, you'll hear references to uh, that, that he would, no matter if he was traveling or not, he would pray through all 150 psalms every day. So that, that, that's what actual Celtic spirituality looks like. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. so, so 
that's kind of the office. Is it's these eight prayer offices every day, um, and it's it's really focused around repetition of the Psalter uh, and and hymns. So it's it's very much a singing office. Mm. Um, then you have the the Mass or the Eucharist. Uh, you have that twice a day. You have the the Mass of the day, and then you have uh, the Morrow Mass, which is um, usually a, a votive Mass, which means that it's not tied to the liturgical year. But Mass of the day is is either um, either following the liturgical year and its seasons, um, Advent, Easter, Lent, you know, that, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. or it was focused on the saint uh, who was being celebrated that day. Uh, and then the Morrow Mass was used often for votives, which, uh, if, if there were particular causes uh, that needed to be uh, lifted up in prayer, so uh, if, there were, if there were plagues, uh, if there were Vikings around, um, if hmm. there were members of the community who had died, um, then they would use it for, for that sort of a Mass. Hmm. Uh, and, and then there was chapter. Uh, chapter was, was sort of the daily monastic business meeting, but monks being monks, they had to make it liturgical as well, and, and so <laughs> there was some liturgy stuff around that. Um, and, and so those are sort of the, the, the bones of the monastic life. Uh, and then different orders and different groups and different times uh, would add more stuff to that, Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the tradition that we find Alfrich in, um, Alfrich and really the whole Benedictine reform was part of uh, the Cluniac system. Uh, so that this derives from a, a large and important monastery in, in France uh, called Cluny, uh, which really made the liturgy its central focus of mm-hmm. what it did, uh, and 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 therefore um, made sure that the monks were properly ready for it. Uh, by adding in a, a whole variety of devotions before and after uh, the hours of prayer. Uh, so that th- they were properly prayed up. Um, and looking at this system, if, if the monks were awake sometime between, you know, 17 to 19 hours a day in the summer, roughly 11 of those would have been spent thinking. Mm. So th- this, is, this is a large amount of time uh, yeah. that's being devoted to, to being being in the liturgy here right um yeah well especially for uh sort of modern evangelicals who have this sort of lingering sense of guilt every day that they haven't spent their 10 minutes of prayer and prayer and and bible reading right Um, this is you know monks didn't just have a really good quiet time every day (laughs) true yeah this is this is something much more um, pervasive. Um, the monk yeah. is part of. This is not part of the monk's life. the The monk right. is part of that life. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Th- these these are intentional liturgical communities that the monk uh, participates in, mm. and that the community exists and its prayer exists despite uh, the, the individuals. Um, uh, certainly, in 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 combination with the individuals, but uh, the, the community as a whole is a it's an intentional body of of prayer. Mm. Um, and so, a- another piece of this is that the liturgies. So, th- the Psalms obviously were, were, were a huge focus, particularly for the the main liturgies. But then we also have um, other liturgical bits that get added in. Uh, to help provide some context for these. So the, the psalms are set. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you know what psalm you're going to be singing uh, at what 
hour and what day of the week. Hey, mm-hmm. it's you know it's 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 Wednesday at noon. Um, we're going to be doing a section of Psalm 119 because right. that's what we do Wednesdays at noon. Um, <laughs> but as we move through the liturgical year and through the the cycles. Uh, they would use antiphons with the psalm, which is a, a sentence usually from Scripture, uh, which would come before and after the psalm, or before and after the canticles. Uh, and, and then there'd be sections of, the, of psalms or other scriptures that would be put in various parts in the Mass, uh, that we call the, the minor propers. Um, and what these did is these were ways of engaging the, the spiritual imagination. Hmm. Um, because you get sort of a line from somewhere, attached to a song, and your mind would then ask, all right, what's the connection between these two things? Hmm. Now, how does, how does this antiphon relate to this song? What, what message is it, is it drawing out of this song? Um, and so part of the spiritual work of the liturgy um, and of then Scripture and, and how the, the Scriptures were working together was this act of putting them in conjunction with one another, sort of a, 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 a call it a, a pregnant juxtaposition, because hmm. you're, you're just setting these things there. You're not, you're not saying, well, this is why we put this here. Instead, it's simply placed there. And the community then, um, in its prayer, is, is, and then in its, in its work after, after prayers ended, uh, it gives them sort of something to chew on, to say, how, how do these things fit together? What, what's the spiritual insight there that I've never seen before? that I can discover if, if I just contemplate this enough. Mm. Um, and, and so that's an important way that uh, other parts of Scripture were drawn in and connected with the Psalms. Mm. Um, and, and so the chief product of monastic culture was the liturgy. Education was education for the liturgy. Poetry mm. and the arts were for the liturgy. Singing was for the liturgy. Um, so constructing new elements or new parts of it is really where the monastic intellectual and spiritual energies were focused. And this is what so many modern scholars miss, especially those who want to know about uh, biblical studies and, uh, in monastic life or in medieval times. Mm. Because the tendency, even, even scholars who want to know better, uh, will look at the 8th through the 11th centuries and say, oh, well, you know, nothing was really going on. <laughs> in, in biblical studies in this period, because we don't have any commentaries from this time, or, or not many. And so if, if there are commentaries, obviously they, they weren't doing biblical stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, but, <laughs> so the, the center, I, I guess you could really say that the center of, of the work that I'm doing in this book is to really lay it out and say, no, that's not the case at all. In mm. fact, uh, all this biblical work is going on. It's just not necessarily going on in, in the ways that, that we would necessarily expect. Right. And that it is in the liturgy. Uh, it's, it's in the way that these were composed, uh, in the way that they were sung, in the way that were performed and enacted. Right. And it's so not in the that, genre that you would prefer if you're a modern biblical scholar. <laughs> right. And so because we're so used to coming at things uh, from the perspective of genre, uh, then we can get tripped up. Right. We're not focusing. Can I ask a quick technical question? Sure. How uh, how difficult was it to piece together uh, in in a very precise way what litur the specifics of the liturgy that Alfred would have been working on in particular? I imagine that the that the Cluniac liturgy itself is 
probably pretty well attested. But um, in in the way that that was uh, manifest in the in the in the Benedictine reforms of the 10th century, did, mm-hmm. is, is that well documented? Well, well, we have bits and pieces. Um, okay. So the the real difficulty is um, you know each each community was working off of its own books and. Right. Again, we've got to we've got to remember this is manuscript culture, right. which means what a community had was based entirely on what that one dude wrote down when he mm-hmm. was copying out a book for liturgical use. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes he's following the book in front of him. Sometimes he's saying, "Wait a minute, no, no, this is not what I sang when I was a child. That can't be right." Um, <laughs> And and so you know you'll you'll have variations. So the only way to know what a, a given liturgical community was doing at a given time is to have access to the the whole set of books that were being used at that time, mm-hmm. which is a mess, um, frankly, yeah. <laughs> particularly uh, when we look at England, uh, because during the Reformation, one of the um, well, one of the, the tragedies of the way that the English Reformation was was carried out. Uh, was the destruction of old books? Yeah, and so we've lost so many, so many things. Um, uh, among them, the sorts of liturgical books that they would have been uh, singing from. Mm. Uh, however, this is one of the reasons, though, why Alfred is such a great guy. Uh, one of the surviving documents that we have from him, uh, this is this is one of his Latin texts, is the, the letter to the monks at Ensham, mm. and and so this is his customary. Uh, so a, a monastic rule says, all right, in big pictures, this is this is how we live, this is what we do. A monastic customary was sort of uh, house rules. Right. Th- this is how it was instantiated in this particular monastery. And so we got Alfred's own house rules. And so often he'll make reference to, to, to certain antiphons or to, to certain hymns, um, which then give us an idea. Um, Christopher Jones's edition of the letter to the monks of Antimus is fabulous. Uh, he, he just does a tremendous amount of, of work in showing sort of the, the traditions that Alfred was working from, uh, and connecting it back to sort of some of the mainland, the continental sources. Um, and so because of that document, uh, we've got a pretty good idea of what Alfred was doing. Uh, we're, we're, never, we're never perfect, we're never 100%, mm. um, but we can, I, I feel confident saying that, that we can put together a liturgy uh, that's probably 95% of what it was that, that Alfred and, and his monks would have been doing on a particular day. Excellent. It is helpful to have someone as prolific as Alfred as your basis. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> nice. Well, before... Um, before we get into some of the the details of how Alfred reads Matthew in specific, um, what you're looking at is Alfred's uh, not commentaries, as as you already said, he's not writing commentaries, he's writing homilies, right. and you're putting him in conversation with commentaries, though. Um, so. I think we have a pretty decent understanding of what a commentary is, and maybe even though all of our listeners might not have picked up a, a, a kind of a academic New Testament studies commentary, they still have some notion of, of, of commentary form. Mm-hmm. But 
what are Alfred's Catholic homilies uh, in terms of in terms of their genre, in terms of what uh, he's attempting to do that's that's different from what a modern commentary is trying to do? Right. Okay. So when we look at medieval preaching, um, mm. the we try to use technical vocabulary that sometimes some writers in the period used, um, sometimes they didn't. Uh, it, it's not entirely precise, but uh, we'll sometimes make a distinction between a sermon and a homily. Okay. Uh, a sermon being sort of a, a general address on a topic, uh, frequently on a feast or on a liturgical occasion or season, mm-hmm. um, and then a homily, which is a uh, an exegetical production. So that this is a, a sermon on a particular text. Okay. Um, and th- these tend to move line by line, so it'll it'll you know uh, c- kind of go a, a verse at a time, um, sort of marching its way through the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- there was a tradition of homiliaries, uh, which are collections of homilies uh, that that were were read and and used. Um, and so Alfred's Catholic homilies participate in this familiarity tradition um, of, of books that contain homilies in them for the year. So, again, with the liturgical cycles, uh, readings that, there were two readings at, at Mass, um, certainly for, for Sundays and feast days, um, and, and some other days as well. Uh, but you, you would always have an epistle, and you would have a gospel that were appointed. And mm-hmm. so you would hit the same gospel at the same liturgical occasion every year. Um, so you would sort of be trained, oh, well, it's, um, it's the first Sunday in Lent, so we're going to hear the temptation of Jesus in the desert from Matthew, uh, because that's the reading that's always read at, on that day every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so because they weren't changing, uh, it was always the same, uh, you could prepare... Uh, books that had homilies on uh, the particular texts. What Alfred was trying to do, um, again, he's he's very clear that we're he's trying to give us orthodox homilies in English uh, for the edification of the people. Um, when we think about clergy literacy in the medieval period, uh, we need to to draw some distinctions. So we've got, we've got monks, right? Uh, they, mm-hmm. they live in monasteries. They're, they're singing through all the psalms uh, with everybody else in their community. Uh, they're speaking to one another when they meet in the halls in Latin, uh, when it's a time of the day that they're actually allowed to speak. Um, and, and so the, sort of the language and the culture is, is steeped in Latin. For regular clergy, that wasn't necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. So th- there was obviously there was no seminary uh, at that time. Uh, what would frequently happen is you would have boys or young men who would kind of get attached to a cathedral for a while, um, and then they would be sent out to do their ministry work. Mm. And so when when we think about um, what level of Latin your average priest would have, they might have as much Latin as as someone who who had a few classes in Latin in high school. Um, so enough so that they would be able to get, they would be able to pronounce the liturgy properly uh, if they're reading it out of a book. They they likely know what it, the main body of the Mass meant, 
but the farther you get outside of that, the more sketchy it might become. If, if you were to hand mm. them a, a Latin copy of Augustine's Confessions, uh, they would likely have some real trouble with that. Mm. Um, and so what, what uh, Alfred is trying to do is he says in, his, in one of the, the prefaces, uh, I have seen much heresy in English books. Um, and, and he's real concerned about the state of the sermons that are available in English. Mm. And we can kind of get a sense of this from the surviving materials that are around. Uh, so in terms of vernacular work, there are a couple of big collections. There's the Vercelli book, there's the, uh, the Blickling homilies, mm. um, and then some other random assorted things floating around. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> looking at these, um, there is some sketchy theology going on in some of these books. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, in in particular, there are some banned books that we see popping up as vernacular homilies. Yep. Um, the Apocalypse of Thomas uh, comes to mind, and, and mm-hmm. there are some others where, yeah, there, there's there's some questionable stuff there. And so, Alfred is trying to give people. Um, and and he's, he offers these books as, as gifts to the Archbishop of Canterbury, so the, the spiritual head of, uh, of certainly southern England, um, for, for copying and dissemination. Um, these are our homilies in English that are grounded in the teachings of the Church Fathers and in uh, properly lived monastic life. Uh, and so what he's trying to do is, is to show, he's trying to teach regular lay Christians and clergy, uh, what good doctrine looks like, mm. um, what what good Christian living looks like, uh, and how they're supposed to embody the biblical text as best they can. Mm. So th- these are the kinds of questions that he's asking. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, looking at it, these aren't so far off from the sorts of questions that I, I think good preachers are, are asking today. Hmm. Uh, what is what is good doctrine? Uh, what does good Christian living look like? And how do we how do we make our lives intersect and, and interface with the text better? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I'm I'm glad for that clarification because it's uh, it's important to I, I think as we look at these to recognize that Alfred is not uh, he is an abbot and he is um, I mean his his primary vocational concern is is looking after the the worship and the order of his of his own uh his own monastery and within his own order he's interested in the reform but he's also interested in in the catechesis and the teaching and the worship of uh of the lady as well absolutely yeah so this yeah, was it, it, again that's, that's one of the neat things about him is is we have some of these letters uh that he wrote to, to lay nobles um, where he'll say, yeah, when I was uh, at your hall last time, I talked about, you know, these various theological topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad we could have this conversation. Don't try and give me so much beer next time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, we, we, you know, Alfred really did have have a heart for teaching the gospel to uh, uh, to people who didn't have the Latin to, to read it mm-hmm. there. Yeah, and uh, just his, 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 his biblical translation work with that introduction... That has just that that whole kind of theological sketch of the whole scope of the Old and New Testaments, and right, it's, yeah, it's just just lovely, lovely stuff. Everybody, go read Alfred. That's that's the <laughs> takeaway. That's the takeaway today. Yep. 
Anywho, so we, we ought to look at, at at least one of the passages, and I don't want to, you know, dear dear listeners, um, this this interview has in no way obviated um, your need to read the book. So um, we're just going to look at one passage. We're not going to look at everything. Um, I would like to look in detail at one though, uh, to give the listeners the sense of how your project works at the level of the text, at the level of chapters and verses. Right. So can you walk us through Alfred's treatment of the Beatitudes and yeah. the ways that he you're putting him in conversation with the current commentaries and mm-hmm. what we can get out of that? Okay. Uh, so I, I had four commentaries that I interacted with in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got two sort of technical commentaries, Ulrich Lutz and uh, uh, Alice and Davies. Um, mm-hmm. They've got so, sort of a German continental look. You've got sort of old-school English um, academics. Uh, and then also looking at uh, Eugene Boring and Douglas Hare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those were commentaries that were written more with an eye for preachers. Um, so still academic, still connected into those those traditions, uh, but with the intention that, that this is this is going to be for preachers. Uh, let me look at those four and what they do with the Beatitudes. So that's what I do first. I kind of walk through. So that this is how they're reading them. The major thing that we see, uh, that there are kind of two big pieces that these four commentaries are fussing with. Uh, the first is kind of the state of the text, um, and and what parts of this are, are kind of go back to the historical Jesus. So, you know, you, you see that that we have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, we have the Sermon on the Plain uh, in Luke, which has some some similar material. So, if we posit that you know there's the hypothetical document Q, well, what if this is coming from Q, and then what is is Matthew adding in here, and and so, so that they're sort of interested in in those questions of um, how did the text find its way to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's one category of questions. The other category of questions um, does make sort of a, a turn to the theological, and that is, are the Beatitudes about ethics, or are they about eschatology? Mm. Uh, so ethics in terms of, um, are these rules that tell us how we're supposed to live, uh, or which would be the ethic, or is, he, is Jesus making a proclamation about how God is choosing to act, which would be eschatology. Mm. Um, so is, is God blessing specific groups of people based on their condition and situation, or is Jesus presenting a set of guidelines uh, so that people will behave in certain ways in order to get blessed? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I, I can't help seeing sort of some, some Luther hanging in the background here. <laughs> uh, you know the, the way that, that he makes the distinction between law and gospel, right. uh, and then the law is about things that that we do uh, or or fail to do, and the gospel is about things that God does. Mm-hmm. And so, because of that sort of heritage, um, the ethics kind of is is a bad word uh, mm-hmm. because if it's just about what you're doing, well, then it's legalism and it's uh, it's law. It's not gospel. Uh, and so all four of these commentaries are sort of working with this, and, and all of them say, yeah, it's, it's really more eschatological than it is ethical, but, but they acknowledge the ethics is kind of in there, too. Um, but exactly how you balance that is, is the question, and, and sort of the, the crux of what they wrestle with. 
Mm-hmm. Turning to Alfred. Alfred is doing something entirely different. Um, so it's again, it's thoroughly a product of and is embedded within the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, a an early medieval homily is just as much an aspect of the liturgy as an antiphon or a song. Uh, it, it's just a longer and more discursive portion of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And, and to see it apart from that context is to misunderstand it and maybe even misrepresent it. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you've got to kind of see it in the context of what the other things that people would have been hearing and singing uh, and doing at the same time to really get a, a sense of how this text is being worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so for Alfred, the Beatitudes aren't the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that come after a, a sort of healing tour and, and that lead on to, to other stuff. Instead, this is the gospel text assigned for the Feast of All Saints uh, that calls mm-hmm. every year on November 1st. Um, and so th- this, this is a feast that celebrates all of the saints, um, and, and the reason why we need to feast for all of the saints um, is because, you know, obviously, in, in Alfred's view, the, the saints are interceding for us, uh, they're mm-hmm. helping us, uh, with their prayers, and therefore it is our duty to show them respect and honor um, by by praying for them uh, and and celebrating them in liturgies. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are some, particularly the martyrs, uh, who were killed for their faith, um, whose names we have lost. Mm. But just because we don't know, know who they are doesn't mean they're not praying for us. Right. And so we will be falling down on our responsibilities to the whole body of Christ if we're not honoring them as well, even if we don't know their names. And so that's why we have a Feast of All Saints, hmm. is, is to make sure that, that uh, all the members of the body of Christ, uh, particularly those who are, who are interceding for us in, in a heavenly state, uh, are getting the respect and the honor that they're due. Um, so then this sermon has got two parts to it. Uh, in the first section, um, he is ostensibly treating the epistle, but, but he actually uses this as an opportunity to sort of work through the major liturgical categories of the saints. Um, uh, and, and he does this in a sort of quasi-chronological, quasi-liturgical way, um, using sort of familiar categories. So we have, we have martyrs, we have confessors, well, first, we have the apostles, uh, and then martyrs and confessors. Um, and, and hermits, and we have, we have the women too, we have the Blessed Virgin Mary, and we have the virgins, and we have the widows, and, and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Then once he's, he's talked about who and what those are, then he moves into the Beatitudes. Um, and he's interpreting it from the, uh, um, he, he's, he's sort of working off of Augustine's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is the appointed patristic sermon, sermon from the Church Fathers, that would have been read at the night office. And, and mm-hmm. so he kind of uses that as a starting place, and then riffs off of that a bit. Um, and the way he does it is he goes through each of the, the lines in turn, um, and he asks the question, what are the virtues that are being placed before the hearers? Mm-hmm. Well, what are the virtues that this text is asking us to embody? What can we learn about the virtues of Christ? from how to act more like Christ as a result of this text. 
Mm. Um, so he, he's, he's using moral readings, he's using what we call allegorical or spiritual readings uh, to really get into what these, these virtues would be. Um, so, for instance, he takes uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. He, he's going to take this one very literally. Uh, for him, this is a call to the monastic life. Uh, because, you know, he, he sort of says, uh, there are very various ways that people can be poor. There are various ways people can be poor in spirit. Um, so you, you've got those people who were uh, materially wealthy, who were spiritually poor, who were mm-hmm. humble. Uh, so people like Abraham, people like Job, people like David. Um, you've got people who are materially poor, but who are spiritually uh, not rich, uh, those who are, who are sort of poor but grumble uh, about it. And then you've got the, the poor in spirit, those who are materially poor and also uh, share in that humility of spirit, and these are the monks. And, and mm-hmm. so, therefore, if we want to do it fast, we should do it like the monks do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's sort of the, the way that he, he goes through all of these. Um, and then he gives particular focus to the last one. Um, you know, blessed is, or, or you are persecuted um, when people revile you and all that, because, again, as the Feast of All Saints, uh, he's primarily got martyrs on the mind here. Mm. Um, and martyrs, if you're t- going to talk about imitation and the imitation of Christ, then martyrs have imitated Christ in a very specific way um, that shows their dedication and commitment um, more than sort of the, the average set. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's one thing to proclaim Christ, it's, it's one thing to, to follow the teachings of Christ, uh, but to, to literally follow in the footsteps, take up your cross and mm-hmm. follow me, and to do that and to die for the faith. Well, that's, that's the extreme form of imitating Christ. You don't get much more imitative than that. Right. Uh, and, and so they are, are particular exemplars then of, of what's going on, what we're supposed to be doing. Um, so, in a sense, you could look at, if you're going to kind of come from the modern framework, you could look at what Alfred is doing and say, okay, well, he's, he's ethicizing. He's mm-hmm. doing that. Um, however, the factor here uh, that's got to be considered is the role in place of the saints. Um, because the other piece of this is that when we look at feast days for the saints, where the Beatitudes show up in those other antiphons and minor propers, and those other bits that get inserted in the liturgy at different times of the year, the Beatitudes are always popping up on saints' days, particularly on martyrs' days. Mm. Um, And and so there's a clear connection being drawn between this text um, and the saints, and their own degree to which they are both uh, imitate Christ and are plugged into the life of God that they're displaying through uh, eschatological power. Hmm. And so what Alfred, I think, shows us uh, and, and offers to modern scholarship is to say, you know what? Ethics isn't just about doing the text. It doesn't, it doesn't stop there necessarily. Because what Alfred is saying is that, that following these, embodying these virtues, uh, leads to a way of being um, that then connects directly into the eschatological. Mm. 
and so the eschatological really is in play um, in his reading uh, in, in a different way from what the modern biblical scholars are looking for. Right. The kind of uh, in betwixt and between eschatology that the saints enjoy in the presence of God. Right. So if, if you were going to use, you know, uh, make sort of the, the Bardian, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the already and the, and the not yet, um, the saints are very much the sign of the already. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah. of God's work, you know, breaking into the, the world uh, from, from the outside. Excellent. So, so you, you you can you're 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 seeing that that Alfred sort of has through his through his litur- liturgical context been given the the pieces to kind of wed these two principles that current commentaries see as pretty much fundamentally antithetical. Right. Yeah. The, the mediating term is is lived lives. Mm. It's it, it's how the life of faith transforms and unfolds. Mm. Very cool. Well, speaking of building bridges, um, I get the sense, um, well, in your book, the, your goals and your stance are very academic. Right. Um, but I know that beyond that, you have an interest in the role of liturgy in the life of the church that's yeah. more than academic. So can you build a bridge between this book and that other interest? Do you see insights in this project that are leading to some more practical or devotional applications for, for Christian congregations? Oh, definitely, yes. Um, both in terms of the liturgy and liturgical spirituality, mm-hmm. um, also in thinking through and thinking with the saints. Mm. Um, so, as I said before, I'm, I'm an Episcopalian, um, which means we... Uh, our worship is, um, in some ways, a, a modified form of of this th- these liturgical cycles. In that, um, in our Book of Common Prayer, we've got morning and evening prayer uh, to be done daily uh, by both communities and individuals, and then the, the Eucharist on 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 Sundays and, and feast days. Um, and so, for for my particular. Um, uh, group of, of Christianity, there's, I, I think there's some real direct connections. And in fact, um, I've got a, a book coming out later this summer uh, on the spirituality of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, cool. which uh, makes, makes all these connections and ties, ties these things together. Um, but I think that um, the idea of prayer, liturgical prayer, set prayer as a path to um, reorient, constant reorientation towards God mm-hmm. um, is 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 really key. Uh, I think reading the biblical text as um, as a source for imitation um, has 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 a long history through a lot of different Christian bodies, mm-hmm. uh, and it's something we could definitely use more of today. Um, and then finally, um, for traditions that uh, that that, that Respects uh, saints. Um, I think the idea that that there are special people who have really given their lives over to the teachings of the gospel and have embodied them in um, costly, consequential ways 
do provide us great examples um, of what it means to to be mature Christians. Hmm. Excellent. Well, I have enjoyed this conversation a lot, sir, and uh, yeah. I'm looking have been looking forward to it for a while. Um, but babies happened and all the rest of that, and you know about that, listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, uh, on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to show hospitality to our guests by giving you the last word. So, uh, as we're sort of rounding out this conversation, what would you like our listeners to sort of leave with? Uh, what do you want them to be thinking about as as we finish here? Ah, uh, let me see. Um, so, if, if the past is, is a foreign country, then it's it's one peopled with it, it's got friends and teachers in it, mm. um, and and I think we would do well to to sort of look back um, because th- there are ages full of um, deeply committed Christians who have lived deeply spiritual lives uh, that that we stand to learn from. Uh, and and so you know part of what I was trying to accomplish here was to, was to look back at, at one particular section of one particular time uh, and and to kind of overhear what strong authentic Christian living and believing looks like mm. um, and and there there are so many more of these out there uh, so the past is a place that that we can look to the the path shows us the footprints of the spirit as it's moved through the ages. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Well, listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Derek Olson, uh, the author of Reading Matthew with Monks, Liturgical Interpretation in Anglo-Saxon England, uh, published by Liturgical Press. When the show notes for this podcast post on our blog, christianhumanist.org, there will be a link to the Liturgical web, uh, Press page for the book. So you can check that out. If you would like to Uh, give us feedback on this particular episode. You can post in the comments on the show notes on the blog, christianhumanist.org. You can send email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or at a, yeah, gmail.com. Or you can post comments on our uh, Christian Humanist Facebook page. You can also like our Facebook page. Uh, We also crave uh, good ratings on iTunes. Uh, It helps spread the love, as it were. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. I've been your host this week, David Grubbs. I wish you all grand weeks. and Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.